Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the European Union state aid investigations. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. On this week's inaugural episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to have Mike Erse, the former leader of PwC's U.S. International Tax Practice. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. Glad to be here. Well, Mike, we're six months in, if you can believe it, since U.S. tax reform was officially enacted. At this point, we've seen dozens, if not hundreds, of articles, comment letters, panels, highlighting just the sheer, a sheer huge volume in the number of uncertainties in the law. What are some of the issues and uncertainties that you're seeing companies even six months in and while we're waiting for regulations grappling with? Well, Doug, I think the first thing is, is the toll charge is such a large number for companies that a lot of folks are just wondering whether their original provision is accurate. And of course, anyone with a calendar year specified foreign corporation has to report that toll charge this fall. So this summer is going to be a frantic chase of documents and calculations to try to understand whether that January or February provision was, was accurate. Right, and we've gotten some notices that have given us some insight as far as how those calculations work. Companies, generally those public companies, have put up a provisional amount, presumably with respect to what that Section 965 toll charge, but where you're going is, companies still actually need to compute their E&P and then have, understand what those foreign tax receipts and foreign, what those foreign tax credits are, presumably supported by foreign tax receipts, to really justify that, that provisional amount that they may have in their books. That's right. I mean, when you think about it, this is gonna be the largest foreign tax credit claimed by many companies in their history. And so uh, it will be important for them to be able to support the foreign tax credit with foreign tax returns and even foreign tax receipts for probably their most important jurisdictions. Um, the, the other thing is, as you notice, as you mentioned, um, the recent notices have given us more guidance about how to make that computation. Uh, and there is going to be proposed regs under Section 965 later this summer. Uh, we understand it's many hundreds of pages and it's currently in review. But um, for example, notice 2018-26, uh, makes it permissible to accrue your foreign taxes uh, for your specified foreign corporations uh, as of November 2nd, 2017. And the implication of that for calendar SFCs uh, is that for many taxpayers, the measurement date is going to flip from November 2nd to December 31st. So. That means for a lot of companies, the toll charge that they recorded in their provision is too high because they would have used November 2nd as the date to measure their toll charge, not having accrued foreign taxes. And once you accrue 10 months of foreign taxes for a calendar SFC, you end up with a lower EMP number most of the time versus the December 31 amount. So your point is, is when, when we were doing those calculations back at the end of December, before we knew this rule, that December amount, that E&P, we had reduced the amount of taxes that were paid in the current year. 
and then in November 2nd, where we didn't know that we were able to accrue those taxes, that E&P number was significantly higher. So that when, when companies were then accruing what that 965 toll charge should be, they had to pick November 2nd because they couldn't reduce the taxes and they had a higher amount. That's right. The notice also had a lot of anti-abuse rules. So if you did transactions after November 2nd, some of those transactions may uh, get unwound, which might have reduced either your measured EMP or even the, the toll charge tax credit that you thought you could get. So it's important for companies to understand what transactions might have been caught by 2018-26. Um, I'd say that a couple other things that are causing trouble under the toll charge is companies really just have a lot of work to do to quantify their cash on hand at the three measurement dates because you have to test not only your end of 17 cash but the average of your end of 16 and end of 15 cash and see which of those two is greater. And that's a lot of work because you have to look at um, all the cash and cash equivalents at each specified foreign corp, including deficit companies. So um, that's a lot of work. And, and those amounts, what I found interesting, Mike, is for particularly for fiscal year CFCs, and maybe this is really exclusively for fiscal year CFCs, well, they're, they're still running their businesses and distributions and the cash amounts mm -hmm. continue to, to move up and down. And so to understand and try to figure out what that cash amount is going to be at the end of, of the fiscal year is, is still challenging. And then trying to understand what amounts should be distributed, how those impact the calculation, create both some opportunities for taxpayers to try to manage their, their cash amounts as well as, as some traps. Right. And, and then finally in the toll charge, there's simply the mechanics. Uh, everybody has deficit companies and so when the statute was written, it looked like a what we call a two-step calculation where you first allocated deficits to positive SFCs within a U.S. shareholder group. Uh, the later notice then made it clear that they're going to change this in regs to allow for a one-step calculation, which means you take all your deficit companies, aggregate them, and apply them pro rata to all positive deferred foreign income corps that is in the affiliated group and that way you, you simply do it at a one-step level and that changes the amount of deemed paid credits you get at those defects versus a two-step count. One of the other issues, Mike, that I've seen a lot of companies grappling with, particularly in the context of deficits, is that you know to the extent that a deficit has offset positive E&P, that creates PTI at the, the CFC level where the deficit had been allocated. Now, because there is no 965 inclusion on that ENP that is now treated as PTI, there's no 961 basis that is added at the top of the structure so that if taxpayers wanted to actually bring that cash back to the US for that positive ENP that was offset by a deficit that's treated as PTI, there's really no basis there to support that dividend distribution. It's something that I sometimes refer to as naked PTI, or I think, what's the term that, that you've used? Um, orphaned, orphaned PTI. Effectively, it's PTI without basis. And so what, what are your thoughts as far as the risk? I mean, is that really a, a, a real risk for, for taxpayers? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, obviously, guidance is really needed in this area, but I, I guess I would say that 
we think that to the extent you have good 965 PTI that had been taxed, um, you ought to be able to get to that without any kind of capital gain. Um, the other thing to remember is that if you distribute only that 965 PTI amount and then you simply wait each year to create guilty and bring out that PTI, we think, we think PTI comes out LIFO, uh, LIFO, so last year first. So if, if as long as you distribute the amount of cash that you're earning each year uh, equal to your guilty amount, uh, then you shouldn't have this basis problem. But you certainly need to keep an eye on it if you make big distributions in excess of your 965 PTI or 965 plus guilty, whichever yeah. year you're in. I totally agree, Mike. I think it's more a, a trap for the, for the unwary. And I think the other thing is that I've seen as I've talked to a number of taxpayers is that many of them have other outside basis right, just old and cold historic outside basis. And so the distribution of that orphaned or naked PTI would still just reduce your other, you know, taxpayers other outside basis. So I think it's probably less of a practical issue. It's certainly something that I think our clients and taxpayers would like to have guidance and, and clarity on because you question whether that's the right answer from a policy perspective, but it does seem, seem to be something that can potentially be managed. So I think uh, the next area is probably guilty. That's, that's an area there's a lot of uncertainty. And in that area... And, and that is before you, you dive in. That really has just gotten a lot of, of the press. I think with amongst you know, the, the, the tax policy folks that are on panels, I mean, guilty just, it's just we are hearing a lot about guilty. And there are a tremendous amount of other issues too, but guilty is just certainly, does that surprise you or... Well, it surprises me because of it, uh, its design was as a minimum tax, and most of our U.S. multinationals pay more than 13% abroad, so it shouldn't be such a big issue. But when you, when you step away from the toll charge, which is a 2017 event, or, or for some people, 2018. For fiscals. The, uh, the biggest issues in the international area are, are really guilty because Guilty has this surprise answer because of expense apportionment, which is causing U.S. residual tax. Um, BEAT is, is certainly affecting some companies, but it's not as widespread as Guilty. And 163J, because of depreciation and amortization and during the first five years, has largely not hit most of our clients in terms of impact. So when you, and FDI is a benefit. So when you think about bad news, as opposed to the good news about the 21% rate, absent the toll charge, guilty is, is number two right. on the list. And, and the big surprise is really that it, because it has its own basket and credits in that basket don't carry over, the fact that you have to allocate U.S. expenses to that basket it causes you to have less use of tax than you thought you would have. So you're not even if you pay more than 13% abroad, you're probably gonna pay several million dollars to the IRS every year because your foreign tax credit limitation in that basket is actually lower than 13% because of US expenses like interest and R&D. Yeah, and they call it global intangible low taxed income, but what we've learned from working through the mechanics, it doesn't need to be intangible, it doesn't need to be low taxed. And even if you pay above that 13.125, even though I think it was 
arguably kind of advertised, if you will, in the conference report as a minimum tax, because as you stated, expenses have to be apportioned against guilty income. Even companies that are paying above 13.125 in their controlled foreign corporations still end up paying potentially a significant amount of, of U.S. tax on their guilty income, which is double tax effectively on, on, your, on the CFC's earnings. Right. So it's just a big, it's a big mess because nobody knows how to allocate expenses. There's lots of theories. We're waiting for guidance on this, and at the moment we just have to rely on the current 861 regs and reasonable methods. Yeah, and I think the challenge, at least that I've had, as someone who spent a lot of time, you know, growing up doing foreign tax credit calculations, is the obviously the existing architecture of the rules and regs didn't account for this extra basket, right? And then besides just being a new basket, it's a new basket that's really kind of its own creature, right? This it's not an income inclusion at the CFCs, it's an income inclusion at the U.S. shareholder level. And so, you know, with, with royalties and interest and the other things that we've normally contemplated, particularly in the context of basketing, that it's just, it's a different world with, with guilty because it is this U.S. shareholder inclusion. And consequently, it's been challenging for all of us to try to figure it's square pegs and round holes. It's been very challenging to try to figure out how do we use the existing rules and the architecture of these existing rules to apply them to, to guilty. And you know, obviously everybody is anxiously awaiting Treasury to give taxpayers guidance to figure out how we actually compute that. And what's the advice that you're giving to, to companies that you know, guilty's already applying to the extent they're not fiscal year, that their calendar year, we're in guilty, they're trying to tell the street what those projected rates are. You know, what, what are you generally telling companies how to, how to manage that? Well, the first thing people have to do is understand their base case. They got a model. Um, you, you need to understand what your foreign tax credit position is in your guilty basket and frankly your general basket and your branch basket. Um, in, met, in most cases, uh, taxpayers have excess credits in the guilty basket because they're paying, let's say, 20% foreign taxes around the world on average and it's a single aggregate test. Um, but when you start to allocate expenses, you're you're dropping to 11, 10% instead of 13%. Sometimes so lower, I've seen. Sometimes yeah. lower. So what we're telling people to do is to look at ways to mitigate their uh, expense apportionment <clears throat> to all their baskets, including guilty. And so simple things like remitting PTI, which certainly reduces uh, a foreign asset, which is part of your stock basis bump. Uh, and typically, once you remit PTI, you oftentimes pay off U.S. debt, which lowers interest expense. So that's helping you two ways. Um, but there's point point being before before we leave that is to the extent that we've cash offshore and we've got PTI, that PTI is going to attract additional interest expense, presumably against the guilty basket, uh, because I, I I think all of us would be surprised at this point if we didn't allocate any interest expense against the guilty basket, although I guess that is a, a possibility. But assuming we have to allocate guilty or interest expense against the guilty basket, to the extent that we can just bring foreign cash back to the U.S. that effectively turns a foreign asset to a U.S. asset and then reduces our foreign asset ratio and the amount of interest expense that gets potentially apportioned against guilty. That's right. And, 
And what companies are doing is, in addition to remitting PTI, they're just looking at various expense apportionment methodologies. So, for example, under the 861 regs, uh, you do have to use the asset method, the textbook value method, uh, for interest expense apportionment because they repealed the fair market value method. But within the textbook value method, there is alternative depreciation uh, allowed. Uh, at the CFC level, you can choose whether to characterize your investment in CFCs either based on an asset basis or on a gross income basis. So depending on the relative asset mix within your CFCs or the type of income they earn, whether it's guilty or subpart F or other uh, QBI related, uh, you may get a slightly different answer based on different methodologies. So you really should model uh, what's going to give you the best impact in your guilty basket. Yeah, one of the things that I've been surprised is, you know, going across the country and talking to taxpayers in a variety of industries, even those companies that are in relatively capital intensive industries, I've been surprised at how low QBI is. Right, because a lot of these assets are old and cold, they've been fully depreciated, and so that a 10% return on the, the tax basis in your tangible assets is, is, is really low. And so that you know, companies with even very little, if no intangible income, are still subject to these guilty rules, and the amount of the, the QBI, the 10% of the QBI, is just not as much as I maybe would have expected when those rules first came out. And that's why it's not really guilty income. Right. It really covers most income that's offshore. And it gets worse. I mean, if you have a company with a large factory in a foreign country and it loses a dollar, you can't count that QBI asset for purposes of your guilty calc. You can only count QBI assets of your profitable entities. So um, companies really need to take a look at this calculation and similarly, if you have a loss company, you can't use the credits either. Right. That, so, yeah, One of the other questions that's come up a lot at Guilty that, that I get is, do we apply the new 163J interest limitation rules at the, the CFC level? There's been a lot of commentary on that that we've seen both in the tax press, this was addressed in New York State Bar Association. You know, my view is that you know 163J should not apply at the CFC level. The language that's used in 163J is applicable to taxpayers and if the CFC does not meet the definition of a taxpayer in 7701, then you know my view is that Congress did not intend 163J to, to apply at the, at the CFC level. Some have mentioned the reg in 952-2 that for purposes of computing subpart F, you treat the CFC as a domestic corporation. I'm not convinced that that reg applies for purposes of 951 cap A, but you know this is, and that's just one example of these uncertainties. But you know, wh what's your advice to, to taxpayers, and particularly for public companies that are trying to compute their, you know, their their rate and the guilty income that, that they're telling the street? Well, I think they should really look at it both ways. I mean, that we just don't know the answer. And, and they issued a notice under 163J, and they were silent on this particular point. Um, the, the problem with the, the, the one good thing about this issue is that in many cases, our U.S. clients do not have debt at their CFCs. But many do. And you do have to think about cases where you've borrowed 
at a foreign holding company and all it receives is dividend income. In those cases, it's not going to have any adjusted taxable income and its 163J limit will be zero. So in some cases, you could end up with um, a whole lot of EMP that you didn't expect, which is a lot more guilty income, when you thought you had interest expense cover. So um, we are modeling it both ways at many companies. Yeah, it really is a fundamental question just as, as companies are trying to, to manage that, that guilty income. The other one is it the U.S. share, does it apply within the consolidated group or is it independent by the U.S. shareholder? And if you end up with tested losses in one U.S. shareholder and then tested income in another, can those be used to offset absent the rule? And so it really, we need to know what these rules are to figure out if you need to restructure to, to try to manage some of these issues. We're, we're hoping and we think it's probably going to come out as a consolidated group test but we will see. Before we move to, to, to beat, I, I would be reticent if we did not mention stewardship. Uh, well, if I've got the opportunity to talk to, to Mike Gers, um, you know, I think a lot of companies maybe haven't spent as much time as, as they could or, or should historically on stewardship for, for a variety of reasons. And obviously that is one of the significant expenses that, can, that is allocated against foreign source income and that will presumably be allocated against guilty basket foreign source income. I know this is something that you've spent a lot of time with and you know, have thought about deeply and working with our transfer pricing colleagues to, to understand what are the appropriate amount of expenses that actually belong in the stewardship bucket and what can be charged out. But what are you telling companies with respect to, to stewardship and, and how, we, how they should be approaching, approaching that? Well, first of all, the stewardship regulations were amended a few years back in the under 861-8, and they really narrowed the definition of stewardship, and the intent of that was to minimize deductions in the U.S. where a charge ought to be pushed out to a CFC under 482-9. Um, so it is a narrow category of expenses, but everybody that owns foreign subsidiaries has stewardship expenses and despite rumors to the contrary we do believe that stewardship expense has to be allocated uh, to the guilty basket um, so my message to companies is simply you ought to take a look at your stewardship documentation because at half of the country nobody cared about this thing because people had too much foreign tax credit limitation. They might have had huge royalties or Interest other or types of income right. and expenses were dwarfed by those income flows. And now under tax reform, a lot of the sources of foreign source income have, are, have dried up and all of a sudden stewardship becomes very important. So the, the, most, the most productive way to get to the right answer, I believe, under the stewardship rules is to actually do interviews and talk to the folks who are overseeing foreign subsidiaries, find out what their cost centers are up to, what kind of activities they're engaged in, and that will tell you what to charge out and what to deduct in the U.S. as stewardship. All right, so let's move to, to BEAT. Um, I think when, when we first saw BEAT, when we first saw the language for BEAT in the inbound section of the proposed rules that we really thought that this was targeted at foreign-based multinationals investing in the U.S. and payments from the U.S. to the foreign-parented groups. 
what we've all learned is that beat does not just impact our foreign parented groups, our inbound companies, but also our, our outbound companies that have significant payments to, to, to CFCs. What are, what, are you, what are you seeing in the, in the beat context? What are some of those, those traps and issues that, that companies are facing? Well, the first, first of all, you have to understand the beat calculation. Uh, in, the, in the first year, in 2018, uh, although the 3% uh, beat payment limitation is, it was lowered, it used to be 4% in the original bill. As far as 3% of your total deductible expenses Correct. whether you even into the beat rule. Right, so it's it's actually easier to, to trip the first test because the 3% number is so low. Uh, but many U.S. companies that are U.S. based are actually over the 3% because they do make payments to CFCs. For example, just service companies that could be doing contract R&D in India. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be interest or, or, or a royalty, but it could be just a certain, many times it's a service payment. So once you trip the 3% rule, you then have to go into the min tax calculation and determine if your beat income, which includes the beat payments, uh, is more at the beat tax rate than your regular U.S. tax is, in which case you'll have a beat liability. And in 2018, the beat liability is only 5%, right. so for most people, it's, it's usually not a problem. But as soon as the rate pops to 10% in 2019, many more people get caught by it. And the, the problem that U.S.-based companies are facing is that if they have some payments to CFCs, such as service payments, and they're over that first 3% you know, safe harbor, and now they have to do the test. What's happened is, is what we call the guilty boomerang. And for groups that have lots of CFCs and lots of foreign income, uh, much of it is guilty. And it's just the way the mechanics of the rule. As you said earlier, there's very little QBI. So if you have a lot of guilty income and you pay a lot of foreign tax abroad, you generally don't have a big U.S. liability on the guilty, except for expense apportionment. But when you get to beat, that guilty inclusion increases your taxable income for beat purposes, but you do not get to count the foreign tax credit. So once you apply a 10% rate on your U.S. income plus your guilty income plus your beat payments, that 10% tax often is greater than the regular tax at 21% that you paid on your U.S. group's income because the guilty income was effectively not taxed because of the foreign tax credit. So guilty not only can cost you money because you have expense apportionment, it can actually throw you into beat when you didn't expect it. Yeah, and I've been really surprised at the number of companies that end up being subject to this guilty whipsaw. And it generally is applying to just companies that have a significant amount of service payments. And besides even serve cost share, just really any type of, of payments. And I think you're right, service industry companies tend to be more subject to this. But even any company that does a significant amount of R&D overseas and that the U.S. is, is paying for, that all of a sudden is subject to the beat, you know, you would say, well, they're paying a lot of foreign tax on, on their foreign earnings, but because of this, what did you call it, the, the guilty whipsaw or the, the guilty boomerang, 
because of the guilty boomerang, you end up paying this 10% tax on these earnings that have been subject to a high, high rate of tax. Now, I wonder if that's really what Congress intended to impact so many U.S. multinationals. Now, one thing that we really need guidance on is when you measure bead payments, do you count a cost plus amount or do you just count the plus? And that would take a lot of people out of the 3% rule. So if I'm paying $115 to India and my, the underlying cost is 100 if the beat payment's only $15, that would be great guidance to get and it would pull a lot of people out of beat because you wouldn't even be in the 3%. Absolutely. I think that would certainly be welcome guidance. I know there was a soliloquy on the, the Senate floor that really memorialized some of that, but for to have some concrete guidance from Treasury would absolutely be welcome advice for many U.S. multi multinationals. So, Mike, maybe in closing, you know, if if companies are halfway through the year, what are you know the the things that they should really be be focusing on here in the short term? I would say there's probably four things. Number one, I would have a strategy to get my toll charge done. And when I think about how soon October 15th is gonna roll around for our calendar clients, doing 30 years of calculations, uh, especially if you have hundreds of CFCs, is a huge monumental task. And uh, just having a plan to comply with the toll charge, it has to be high on a VP of taxes list. Um, Secondly, I think you need a strategy to model out current year new law provisions like guilty beat and FDII. And that means having a robust model that can not only uh, deal with the data you have at your company, but that's nimble enough to run scenarios and nimble enough to allow you to make law changes as we get guidance from Treasury. Because we're going to get a cavalcade of proposed regs this year. Uh, over the course of the next seven months. Um, third, I think um, I would, what's my third thing? Third, I think I would say get a PTI strategy because tax folks are going to be under a lot of pressure from their C-suite and particularly Treasury to get their cash home because everybody thinks it's free. But what uh, the folks outside the tax world don't understand is we have impediments to bringing cash home. They could be withholding taxes, which are not creditable. There could be legal restrictions or uh, other uh, impediments in, in a local country. Uh, similarly, there could be just tax attribute issues such as lack of 961 basis. So uh, getting, a say, a 12 or 18 month plan to get your PTI home is something people should start to think about. And then the last thing is really, I think it's important for our U.S. companies to keep the global tax environment in mind as you start to think about how these new provisions are affecting your company. So you can't just look at FDII in a vacuum or guilty in a vacuum. You have to think about, well, what's happening in Europe with ATAD? We've got rules under ATAD 1 that are going to change this December or sooner and we have rules under ATAD 2 which are going to be changing by December of 19 and those affect not just how you might insert debt into a country but it affects CFC rules and other uh, 
requirements that are in those provisions. Um, so as you think about your structure of your company, where your IP is located, are you going to take advantage of FDII in the U.S.? You also have to think about what do I have outside the U.S.? Is my substance there to support the profit I earn in those particular countries? How am I going to be affected by BEPS, ATAD, you know, the multilateral instrument? And design a strategy that's not only going to minimize your U.S. tax footprint under guilty beat FDII, but is also supportable under those foreign tax law changes because they're, they're going to come fast and furious too. Well, that cavalcade of regulations, as you described, is certainly something that we are going to continue to focus on on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. The European Union's Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, both one and two, are also going to be topics of conversation. And so MICRS, PwC, International Tax Partner, the former International Tax Services leader in the U.S., Thank you very much for joining our inaugural edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you back in another couple weeks where we discuss other hot topics in international tax.